Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 15. I bring you greetings from our church down in Vista, Christ Reformed Baptist Church. We give thanks to God for the fellowship that we have together with you. I know that they're praying for God's blessing on our meeting here today. Uh, it's a great thing to join together as churches and work together. It really, really is a wonderful thing. We thank God for that. We'll give our attention this morning to a study of Psalm 15. Hear the word of God. A Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired word. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we ask you to come to us now and to help us because we have your word in our hands. Help me faithfully, truthfully, honestly, by the help of your spirit to proclaim it to your people. And give to all of us ears to hear, to understand, to believe, to obey. Our Father, you have promised that you will bless your people, that you will send your spirit to us, that we will hear the voice of Christ as your word is proclaimed. So we ask you now to fulfill your promise. You have faithfully done this in the past. We ask that you would do it now. And glorify our Lord Jesus Christ as we study his word. We pray in his name. Amen. In commenting on this psalm, John Calvin suggests a possible occasion and setting for its composition. He imagines that perhaps David watched as throngs of Israelites approached the tabernacle of God. He was a godly king, and he knew that many who walked up the hill in order to approach the tabernacle were hypocrites, but he knew that others were genuine followers of the Lord. And so David poses the question that we find in verse 1. King David knew that not all Israel was true Israel. Even though by birth they were all members of the covenant community, many of them were in fact covenant breakers. Their lips spoke of the Lord. Their bodies performed all of the necessary and appropriate actions towards the Lord. Here evidenced by their coming up the hill to the tabernacle. But in reality, their hearts were far from him. And so David contemplates these questions. Who is it that is able rightly to approach God? Now our outline this morning will be very simple. We'll, there I have four points. The first is the question, and then the second is the answer, the third is the interpretation, and the fourth is the application. The question, the answer, the interpretation, and the application, and that's how we will proceed 
this morning. So let's come then to study this psalm and begin with the question in verse 1. Let me read it again for you. David writes and asks, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now this question is straightforward enough, but it's important for us to contemplate its significance. And though it may appear to you as you look at verse 1 that we actually have two questions here, we really only have one question that is expressed in two distinct ways. This is a characteristic of Hebrew poetry that's called parallelism, where you express a thought and then you repeat the thought using slightly different terms. Now, we do need to consider each of these thoughts as they are presented to us, remembering that it's really one question that we see. David begins by addressing the Lord, and he addresses the Lord by his covenant name. Notice in your Bibles, they're probably printed the way that my Bible is printed. Do you see that Lord is written out in all capital letters? That's a device that our translators use to help us to understand what the Hebrew word is behind this. It's the word Yahweh, the personal name for God, the covenant name for God. If you see Lord written out, L and then a small O and a small R and a small D, the word behind it is probably Adonai, which is the more generic word for Lord that could be used in human relationships as well as in a relationship of humans to God. But when it's spelled out in this way, L-O-R-D in all capitals, it tells us that this is the name of God by which he reveals himself only to his people. The name by which he's not known among the nations, but a name that is a special name for the people of God to address him. And so David immediately, by the use of this first word, tells us that he's talking about God and his relationship to his own covenant people. David then immediately follows this address to God by this question, who? Which person? Who among the multitudes of worshipers? Is it that woman? Is it that man? Is it anyone in that group of people who are walking together? Lord, who is it that may abide or sojourn or take up permanent residence in your tent? Now, tent here has reference not to the temple. Remember, David didn't build the temple. It wasn't in existence yet that waited for his son Solomon. The tent is the tabernacle that was made by command of God through Moses and the artisans in the nation of Israel, the tent was a symbolic dwelling place for God. It was a tent, a a temporary building that was pitched among the nation. And when David puts these words together as he phrases his question in the first place, he's asking God, who is it that may live in your presence, may sojourn, may dwell there? Who may approach you, Lord, and who may stay there? Who of all of these people has the right to come to the tent of God and take up his dwelling place in that that spot? He then follows this up with the same question phrased slightly differently. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, you immediately can see how this is the same idea. In the, in the first question, it's translated in the ESV as sojourn. A different word is used in the second question, may dwell, may abide, may take up residence, but the idea is the same. 
Now, David doesn't turn the attention uh, or God's attention to the tent, but rather to the holy hill, because the holy hill is the place upon which God's tent, God's tabernacle, has been pitched. It's Mount Zion. This is the place where God symbolically dwells with his people, on the mountaintop. The tabernacle was to occupy a high place in Israel. And this is one of the reasons why the failure of the kings to remove the temples of the false gods upon the high places was so wicked. God claimed for himself by his dwelling place on Mount Zion, on the high place, the right to all of the earth. When the kings allowed the shrines that were set up to pagan gods to maintain their existence in high places, effectively they were allowing these false gods to challenge the one true God. David looks at this tent, this tabernacle, that has been set up on Mount Zion, and he asks the question, who has the right to dwell here? God dwells here, but David asks the question, Lord... God of Israel, God who has revealed himself in a special way to his people, who is it that may take up residence with you? Now, if you pause for a moment and contemplate this, it becomes really an urgent question, doesn't it? Of all of these people who are streaming up the hill, in groups, perhaps in couples, perhaps some as individuals, as they go up there to worship the one true living God, the God who has revealed himself to Israel, who has the right to stay there? Who has the right to take up residence and dwell in that place? You see, dwelling or abiding or sojourning is very different from visiting. David is not just thinking of a person making an appearance at the tabernacle for effect. That's what hypocrisy does, doesn't it? It does its religious acts in the sight of others because it wants others to see them and give it praise as a result of what it does. David's not asking that question. He's not looking at all of these people and saying, isn't it wonderful to see all of these people coming up to the tabernacle of God because he knows that some of them are false as they come. He's asking the question, Lord, who is it that may permanently take up their place? He knows that some only do this for effect. And so he contemplates and he asks the question, who is it that has the right to live in God's tabernacle? And he follows this up then with the answer. And the answer is found in verses 2 through 5. Let's take a look at the answer. I hope you understand the question. It's very simple. But let's notice how David phrases the answer. Lord, who may abide? Who may dwell? That's the question. And David's contemplation brings some answers. And it's interesting that some of them are positive characteristics, some of them are negatives, and there is a pattern by which David expresses himself in verses 2 through 5. And it simply goes like this, positive, negative, positive, negative, all of them leading to a conclusion. He describes characteristics of the one who may take up residence in God's tabernacle, who may dwell on God's holy hill, who may live on Mount Zion. And let's notice his answer to this question. The first thing that he does is he speaks in positive terms, and he speaks about actions, about walking, and about working, and about speaking. Or the ESV says, doing 
but doing, literally translated, would be working. This one walks, and he does or works, and he speaks. Three positive characteristics of the one who may dwell in God's holy hill. First, he walks blamelessly. Now, this is the language that the Bible regularly uses as a description of one's lifestyle. To be blameless or to be upright is to walk in the integrity of holiness. The very first thing that comes to David's mind as he contemplates these people walking up the hill and asks the question is that the person who has the right to sojourn in God's tent and dwell in his holy hill is the one whose lifestyle is upright, whose lifestyle is characterized by holiness and integrity. This is followed then in the second place by a phrase, who does what is right, or in some of the other translations, who works righteousness. Who does righteousness. Who acts righteously. And David has in mind, by this word, who does what is right, actions or deeds which are pleasing and acceptable to God. That's the standard of what is right, of righteousness. What God pronounces to be good. This person who has the right to stand in God's presence, to sojourn on his holy hill, is the one that God accepts his deeds. God looks at him and and sees a lifestyle of righteousness. And then thirdly, he speaks. He speaks truth in his heart. That is, the fruit of his lips, which is really the result of what is inside him. It's really interesting, is it, that David phrases himself in this way. He speaks truth in his heart. Calvin comments this way. To speak in the heart is a strong figurative expression. But it expresses more forcibly David's meaning than if he said, from the heart. It denotes such agreement and harmony between the heart and the tongue as that the speech is, as it were, a vivid representation of the hidden affection or feeling that is within. That is, his heart has a genuine love for God, and he expresses that love for God in the speech that comes forth from his lips. Calvin is exactly right in the way that he expresses himself. Now, this begins with a pretty high standard, doesn't it? The one who may sojourn in God's tent and dwell in his holy hill must meet a very high standard immediately. But David moves on to negatives. The first three characteristics are positives. Now he speaks of negatives. And he carries on in the same kind of theme. What he says at the end of verse 2, speaking truth in the heart, seems to draw forth in his contemplation another statement about our lips, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. The beginning of verse 3 picks up the end of verse 2, and the contrast is very clear, because one suggests the other and helps to define the other. If he speaks truth in his heart, and that's the expression that comes to his lips, then he will not slander another with his tongue. You know, it's easy to speak kindly to the face of another, while you despise that person in your heart, 
And then when that person is absent, to speak against him or her in his or her absence. That's the way that many times we live our lives, isn't it? Someone will come to us and we'll shake our hand and we'll be very nice and friendly to them. And then when they go away and we're sure they're out of hearing, we turn to someone who's next to us and say, you know what that guy's really like? You know what I really think of him? David says, the man who can dwell in God's presence doesn't do that. And he continues with these negatives. He does no evil to his neighbor. He does not take up a reproach against his friend. Now here, David is speaking to us about the actions of this person. He will not harm his neighbor, and he will not take up a reproach. He will not hear others speak against his friend. David here is defining the one who may stand in God's presence, who may sojourn in his holy hill, by means of the second great commandment. He's talking about how we love our neighbors as ourselves. Really, that would be a summary of verses 2 and 3. He thinks about the way that we interact with other individuals, and he says the one that is qualified to stand in God's presence is the one who lives out the second great commandment and loves his neighbor as himself. In verse 4, David proceeds to another set of positives. Remember the pattern, positive, negative, positive, Negative, verse 4, we're back to positives. Who is the one who may sojourn in God's tent, who may dwell in his holy hill? The one in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt, and does not change. Now, that's really interesting, actually, because if I were to set up a list of the characteristics that might be present in the life of a person who may dwell in God's holy hill, I wouldn't use despising someone as one of those characteristics. And yet, that's what David does. That's not the first thing that comes to mind, that it's a good thing to despise someone else, but in fact, that's what David tells us. Now, why does he speak in these terms? Well, verses 4a and 4b, these two sentences, these two phrases belong together. They're a couplet. David wants us to see their relationship to each other. This man who has the right to dwell in God's holy mountain is a discerning person because he's able able to distinguish between people. And he despises some, though he honors others. Now, what makes the difference in these two types of people? in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, the the difference between the two is the Lord and this person's relationship to the Lord. The deciding factor as to whether or not one despises a person or honors a person is how how these people walk toward God. Do they live their lives for God? Do they serve and honor Him? Or are they vile people who satisfy their own lusts, who pursue their own desires, who live their lives for themselves, setting themselves up as God? Or are they people whose lives are characterized by the fear of God? You you know that that's an Old Testament phrase that means to reverence and honor and to recognize the greatness and the majesty and the power and the glory of God to have a heart and a life that's filled with a vision of His greatness, and to live one's life in light of the fact that this God is the King of all of the universe. That's what the fear of the Lord is about. 
David says, the righteous man who may dwell in God's presence is the one who sees through the vileness of the pursuit of sin and who honors those who show their love for the Lord because they fear the Lord. You know what this is? This is the first great commandment. He begins by speaking about loving your neighbor as yourself, but here he's speaking about loving the Lord with all your heart and soul and strength and might. And those who despise the Lord, who are vile individuals, who pursue themselves, don't love God. But those who fear the Lord are to be honored because they are the ones who love the Lord. And so David now thinks in terms of the first great commandment. They love their neighbors and they love God. And then at the end of verse 4, David again picks up the relationship between heart and word. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. The man who may dwell in the Lord's house is the man who keeps his word. When he swears, when he promises, when he takes an oath, when he vows, he follows through even when it means that he harms himself, even when it places him in a circumstance of inconvenience, even when it places himself in a situation of difficulty, though the hurt is before him, he will do what he says, he will keep his word, and he will not change. And then David proceeds to the second negative, who does not, notice verse 5, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Here he phrases himself in answer to the question, who may sojourn in your tent and who will dwell in your holy hill? He describes this person's use of money. And he does so in terms of the abuse of the poor. In verse 5, who does not put out his money at interest, some of the other translations use the word usury, an old word that perhaps we don't use anymore. What is usury? Usury is taking advantage of others by excessive rates of interest or other means of financial gain. That is, keeping the poor in poverty by abuse of financial relationships. Someone is in great difficulty and you come along and you loan them money, but you loan them money at an exorbitant rate which is beyond anything that is legitimate. My wife and I have recently been watching um, videos from a, a PBS series from the late 18th century in England. And the main character borrows a thousand pounds at 40% interest. Meaning when the bill comes due, he has to pay back 1,400 pounds. And his opponent in this series uses that against him to try to bankrupt him. That's usury. That's what David is talking about here in this place. Keeping the poor in poverty by abuse of financial relations. And then this is carried on in the latter part of verse 5 by speaking about the fact that he won't take a bribe. He can't be bought for the sake of lies. And this here is intended to speak not just of the abuse of the poor, but to oppress the innocent and to protect the guilty from punishment that is deserved. You'll be a witness at a trial and you take money to testify in one way or another in that trial. It's a, it's a violation of the ninth commandment against bearing false witness. And David has that in his mind right here. He won't take a bribe. 
knowing that a man is innocent, but he profits from his testimony against that innocent man simply because he wants the funds that he will receive. When I read these words, I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6, a verse that's frequently misquoted, a verse that is much more powerful in its fullness. Paul says this, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now that's usually quoted as money, but it's not money. It's the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil. And the verse goes on to say, from which, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Boy, that's a commentary on this word. That's a commentary on Psalm 15 and verse 5. Who may dwell in God's holy hill? Paul says, those who love money have departed from the faith, have strayed from the faith, and pierced themselves with sorrows. They may be comfortable because their bank account is increased in the moment. But in the long run, judgment is all that they face. And then we come to the end of verse 5, the conclusion. He who does these things shall never be moved. Now, there's an arc that goes back to verse 1. He who does these things shall never be moved. He who does these things shall sojourn in your tent, shall dwell in your holy hill, shall remain in the Lord's presence forever. And the reason for this is that the Lord cannot be moved, and so those who do these things cannot be moved. They will always be welcomed in God's presence. Now, what is this psalm about? That's a brief, very rapid exposition of the thoughts that are present in Psalm 15. It's a pretty high standard, isn't it? We said at the beginning that the question is urgent. Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? If David is in fact contemplating these people who are walking towards the tabernacle and asking the question, it raises really important issues in our lives. So what do we make of Psalm 15? I want to ask you a couple of questions that I don't want you to answer out loud, but I want you to think about. Does this psalm encourage you? If you apply it carefully to yourself, okay, make yourself one of those worshipers who are walking up the hill to the tent of God to live in a place where they will never be moved, to sojourn, to abide. And if you take everything, the positives and the negatives that we find in verses 2 through 5, and apply them carefully and honestly to yourself, do you qualify to dwell in God's holy hill? Do you meet that standard? Can you take up your residence there? Would David be able rightly to single you out as you took step by step proceeding up the path leading to the tabernacle of God on top of Mount Zion? You know, there's a traditional interpretation of this psalm that presents it as a means of distinguishing between the sheep and the goats, or the wheat and the tares in the church. It sees the visible church as a mixture of these two. 
And while the invisible church is the true church and consists only of those described in the psalm, hypocrites are also part of the church. They live one way and the faithful live another way. And we come to the psalm and we say, here's a description of those who really belong to the kingdom of God. And if you read most commentaries, that's the conclusion that they'll draw. That's the interpretation. And they'll have you asking the question of yourself, do I fit? Do I qualify? Can I dwell in God's holy mountain? I have to disagree with this interpretation. It may be the easiest. It might be the most obvious, the simplest, the surface reading of the text. I think that it's completely incorrect. And I want to show you why. Now, one of the things that we need to know about the book of Psalms is that whoever put the book of Psalms together clustered certain Psalms in various positions in order to develop and demonstrate certain themes. Uh, Most of you, or perhaps all of you, have read through the book of Psalms, and you know that it breaks up into five different books along the way. We also notice, in some cases, that there are certain Psalms that are obviously brought together. For example, you have the Songs of Ascent up in the 120s. All of those have the same title. They're brought together for a specific purpose. I think that this Psalm 15 comes in the midst of a cluster of Psalms that help us to understand what is going on in this Psalm itself. Now, think about the traditional interpretation. This is intended to to sift out the hypocrites from the true believers in the church. And true believers are those who qualify based upon their adherence to the, the, the positives and the negatives that are present in the Psalm. Let's think through that in terms of the context. If your Bible's like mine, you can look across the page at Psalm 12. Verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 12. To the choir master, according to the Sheminith, a Psalm of David, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. What's David's evaluation of all of the people of Israel in Psalm 2 verses 1 and 2? That all of them have gone astray. That all of them are sinners. Look at Psalm 14. Immediately preceding our psalm. Psalm 14.1 to the choir master of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven, from Mount Zion, from his holy hill. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And then we read Psalm 15. Look at Psalm 16, immediately after our psalm. Psalm 16.1, a miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. From where does David's goodness come? Is David righteous in himself? 
David confesses that his righteousness only comes from God, and he has no goodness apart from God. You see, in the immediate context, we have all of these statements about the fact that humanity is wicked. Humanity is sinful. How is it that any humans can qualify to stand in the presence of God based upon the surface reading of Psalm 15? It sifts out the good and the bad. Now, someone perhaps has an objection. And they say, wait a minute, brother. Psalm 15 is about relative righteousness. It's about the deeds of the godly man. Not perfectly, but the deeds of the godly man as over against a hypocrite. Well, let's say, let's grant the possibility and let's ask the questions in the context. What does it say? Look at Psalm 17, for example. Beginning in verse 1, a prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You visited me by night. You've tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. David seems to hear cry out to the Lord and say, I'm innocent. In this case, I have no sin. Is it possible then that this is an indication that David is thinking that there are some who in a relative sense, based upon their righteous deeds, may sojourn in the presence of God. But if we keep reading in Psalm 15, it becomes a little bit more difficult to read it that way. Notice verses 4 and 5. With regard to the works of man by the words of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Even here, David confesses that the only way that he is able to stay on the path is with the help of God. It's not his own actions. It's not his own righteousness. It's what God has said. Think, turn back with me to Psalm 15, and let's think about verse 1 and verse 5. Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? The end of the psalm, he who does these things shall never be moved. I ask the question, are these relative terms? To abide or to dwell or to sojourn or to never be moved? Are those relative terms? Those are not relative terms. Those are terms that speak about permanency and of right to dwell in this place. These are qualifications in Psalm 15 for permanent residence in God's presence. We ought to ask the question, is anyone able to do the things that qualify us permanently to dwell in God's presence? Is that a result of our actions? But there's another line of thinking that we need to consider. Notice again verse 2. Now, in the ESV, it simply says, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. That's a good English translation. But some of the other translations, the 1611 King James, the New King James, the New American Standard, make it a little bit more startling when you read it. Because they translate the verse something like this. He who walks blamelessly and works righteousness. He who works righteousness. Now usually when we 
come to that phrase, works righteousness, we employ it as a noun. We speak about justification, and we reject the notion of justification by works righteousness. Rather, we assert the doctrine of justification by faith. Here it's a verb, but doesn't it jump out at you when you read it that way? The one who qualifies to dwell in God's presence is the one who does what is right, the one who works righteousness, righteousness as defined by the standard of God himself. It's a form of do this and live. We ought to ask the question, is this how we stand in God's presence? Is it a result of our works of righteousness? As a result of our deeds? As a result of our actions? You see, the traditional interpretation of Psalm 15 really leads to discouragement and to shame and to doubt. Because I I ask questions like this. Who can abide these things? Who can fulfill these things? Who is able to do these things? Or to use David's words, who shall sojourn in your tent? And who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who is it? It's not me. I can't do these things. It's not me. Let me suggest to you that there's a better interpretation of Psalm 15. It seems to me that David is not writing to promote introspection and discouragement, to cause us to look inward and to examine ourselves, to weigh ourselves in the balance and see if we make the cut. Rather, it seems to me that David is writing prophetically. And David here writes to turn us away from ourselves. Because, in fact, David does describe someone who does these things. David describes one who works righteousness. David describes one who earns the right to dwell in God's holy hill. And the question that we need to ask is the same question that David asks, Who is this one? Who is this man? And we need to let David answer for himself. If we compare Scripture with Scripture, even within the book of Psalms, we have a better answer to David's question than simply applying this to ourselves. In Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2, David says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Take up your dwelling place here at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord says to my Lord, Come and sit at my right hand. In Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7, we read these words, the Lord speaking, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. But even more directly, turn over with me to Psalm 24. Because Psalm 24 presents this to us in very clear language, in parallel. Psalm 24 Verse 1, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's God's claim to universal sovereignty in the world. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. That's the Lord's claim. That's the introduction. But beginning in verse 3, we have a clear parallel to Psalm 15. 
It's in interesting that the introduction's not the same. David's here not asking the question. He's making a declaration of the Lord's sovereignty over all things. But then, verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall dwell in his holy place? That's the same question we encounter in Psalm 15. David answers. Very similar language. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, such as the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And then Selah, that little Hebrew word that probably means pause and meditate. We begin to ask the same questions and apply the psalm the same way that we've done with Psalm 15. Do I qualify? Do I meet these qualifications that are present here? But David doesn't end there. Because David moves on. And now David metaphorically envisions the throne room of God on Mount Zion. He presents to us a picture of someone arriving in God's holy hill and taking up his place to dwell there. And notice what he says. Here's the answer now to David's question. He speaks to the gates of the throne room of God. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Stop and meditate. This time, when David presents to us the same kinds of questions, he continues on and answers by identifying for us the one who is able to enter into the presence of God and take up his dwelling there. It's not one of the worshipers who are struggling as they walk their way up the pathway to the, the high place in Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, in order to worship. Rather, David has a greater picture in his mind. He pictures the king of glory entering into the presence of God himself forever and forever. Psalm 24 is a messianic psalm, which describes to us the glorious entrance of the one who is able to ascend God's holy hill and take up his residence forever and ever at the right hand of God. And I would argue that Psalm 15 must be understood in the same way. Turn back there with me. Psalm 15 is a, isn't about you and me. Psalm 15 is about the Lord Jesus Christ, who has completely and perfectly satisfied all of the acts of righteousness that are described in Psalm 15. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the man of Psalm 15. He is the one who abides in God's tabernacle. He is the one who dwells in God's holy hill of Zion. Who is this man of Psalm 15? It is Jesus Christ. And it's not us. Now think about Psalm 15 like this with me. It is, when it is applied to us, when we read it, it crushes us. It doesn't encourage us. I'm sure that when I ask you that question, if you honestly apply this to yourselves, do you qualify? I'm sure the vast majority, if not everyone in this room said, not me. 
I can't meet the standard. I don't do these things. When Psalm 15 is read in those terms, it's law. And it exposes to us our sins. It shows us how far short we come of the glory of God. But when Psalm 15 is read and understood, speaking of Jesus Christ, it becomes gospel. Because it tells us that God has provided one who fully meets all of the requirements of God. And it is through him, then, that we are able to enter into the holy tabernacle and take up our dwelling on God's holy hill. It's not about us. It's about him. And so I ask you the question, if you see yourself here in your sinfulness, do you see Jesus Christ here in his glory and in his beauty and in his gospel? Do you see that he is the one who has perfectly satisfied all of the demands? I, I said to you that it seems that David, at least in the beginning of the psalm, is thinking in terms of the two great commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who better lived out that commandment than our Lord Jesus. And the second commandment that is mentioned here, or the first great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. Who better has done that than our Lord Jesus Christ? He is the man of Psalm 15. He alone is righteous. And in order for you to take up your dwelling place on God's holy hill, you must find your righteousness in Him. Don't trust in your own actions Don't trust in what you can do. Don't think that you one day will stand in the presence of God. And if judged by the words of this psalm, you kind of hope that the balances will work out and there'll be more good than bad and God will say to you, yeah, you did it, not perfectly, but you did it, come on, into my presence. The psalm really slays you. It will condemn you. Don't be discouraged, though, by this psalm because it points you to Christ. And it's meant to cause you to look to him and to find in him the righteousness that you need to stand in the presence of God. You know, we said that there's a context to this psalm. Immediately following after in Psalm 16, we have some wonderful statements. David expresses the fact that it's only in in the Lord that he has his goodness. That's the righteousness that is granted to him through Jesus Christ. Notice verse 5 and following of Psalm 16. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, the path that leads to God's holy hill. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, dwelling with God on his holy hill. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David has found these things. He understands these things because he trusts in God and the righteousness that God gives. Now, one more thing that we need to say before we close our Bibles from Psalm 15, and it's this. I think properly interpreted, it does point us to Christ. It's not a standard by which to evaluate whether or not we may abide in the presence of God. But that doesn't let us off. That doesn't turn us into antinomians to think that we can then ignore the standards that are set before us. We cannot perfectly fulfill everything that Psalm 15 sets before us. 
but it is a pattern of life that ought to characterize those who love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what He is, and because of what He has done for us, we can read Psalm 15 and pray that He would help us to live righteously in this world. Because Jesus Christ is the man of Psalm 15, He calls us to follow after Him, seeking to live a life of holy obedience, of thinking and speaking the truth in all of our relationships, of genuinely loving our neighbors, especially in how our neighbors act towards God, to show great honor to those who fear Him, but to be willing to despise those who live a vile life, to be able to discern between good and evil, to despise every form of evil, and to love God above all. This is what the psalm calls us to do. Not so that we may earn a place in God's presence, but because through Jesus Christ that place has been given to us, and we love Him and want to serve Him in these ways. My friend, if you trust in your own righteousness, if you think that somehow you can meet the standard of Psalm 15, I tell you because I love your soul that you will fail. When your eyes open in death and you see God in His righteousness, hoping, wishing somehow that you will be received based on what you do, I can tell you now, you will be terribly disappointed and disappointed forever. But if you will trust in Jesus Christ and find your righteousness in Him, from this moment on, you can live with peace and with joy and with the expectation that He will welcome you into His Father's kingdom because He forgives your sin. Thank God for Psalm 15. It is law and it's gospel and it points us to our great and wonderful Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this word which on the one hand slays us and on the other hand points us to life. We ask that that life might be ours. That Christ might be the object of our faith. And because we love him, that we might then proceed to seek to do the things that are presented to us in Psalm 15. Not to earn your favor, but to demonstrate our love for you. Write these words on our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.